and welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, uh, welcome to those who are online joining us, uh, excited for what what we have in store for this morning. Uh, Turn your Bibles, Genesis chapter 14. We're continuing on in our study of Abraham, who's currently Abram at this point in his journey. Uh, And we've reached a point that I think uh, is a a part of the story that's begging for a big blockbuster movie. Uh, I don't know why Hollywood hasn't realized the money to be made from just pure capitalistic, selfish reasons by taking some of these stories and turning them into movies. But this is a great one because it's got, it's got political intrigue. It's got uh, great characters, you know, incredible, powerful villains, uh, great heroes. It's got epic battles, multiple chase scenes, daring rescue, everything you would be hoping for uh, in a movie, except for Tom, um, Tom Cruise. But other than that, it's got it all right. Um, and, and the thing about the Bible is it's more, much more than just a collection of stories though, right? The reason we study the Bible is ultimately to get to know the author. I, I think it's important for us to understand that the, the Bible in many ways is an autobiography. It's God writing his own story so that you and I can get to know him and get to know his heart, who he is. And, and that's why what Robin shared a few weeks ago about meditating on his word is so important. Right, taking that time to really just pause and reflect on what what God's saying. What's the significance of these stories, and what's who? How is He revealing Himself? What's His character, and then how are these people responding? Because then we can learn to respond similarly. Because what ultimately, hopefully, happens as we study these 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 stories and we study His Word is that our faith is strengthened. I want to read a verse. You don't have to turn to it, but in Romans ten verse fourteen. Paul writes this, how will they call on him and whom they've not believed? Right? That's that part of faith. How will we have faith if we, how will we call on him if we don't have faith? And how will they have faith? How will they believe in him if they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Now it's not about here because this word speaks for itself. But the point being is, is our faith grows as we hear his word, as we're exposed to it. And as that faith grows, that, that belief in, grow, on, in him grows, we get to call upon him as we saw last week, which was so important. And what we've been learning about Abram so far is that really his life is one of growing in obedience, right? We talked about how he is partially obedient, that God called him to leave everything behind in Mesopotamia and he partially obeyed, right? Leave everything behind. So he took his dad, his nephew, all his possessions and all his servants and everything with him. And then came to a place of Haran, a place of delay outside of Canaan. Father dies and God says, come again, leave everything behind. So he did. He brought Lot, all his possessions, all his servants and everything with him, but entered into Canaan. And then God says, I will look after you. And Abraham said, great, I'll go to Egypt to look after myself. Right? So you can see he was partially obedient, but growing in that obedience. But that that, uh, episode in Egypt, I think was so powerful for him because it allowed him to learn the trust, to learn to call upon the name of the Lord. 
And we saw the evidence of that last time when, when things went kind of sideways with Lot. The relationship with Lot kind of broke down. And what we're going to see today is a continuation of all that. And, and why that's important is because that's what God's doing in our hearts, right? That we're similar to Abram in this point where we're learning obedience. And just like God used the difficulties and the circumstances to bring about that change in Abram's life, God's doing the same thing in you and I. He's using those challenges. And you see, the reality is in Abram, it was a great famine. In us, it might be a, some other kind of adversity. And we look at that trial and we think, God, why would you do this? And yet what we don't see is the gift that that trial really is. In, I, in Isaiah 55, 8, 9, a famous verse where, where God says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts, right? As high as the heavens are above the earth are my ways and my thoughts compared to yours. So we see the adversity as, as a problem and he understands that adversity is a gift because what it's doing again is bringing about that change. Sometimes you might hear me use the term brokenness in this case here. And I, I wanna explain what brokenness is and what it's not. Sometimes people hear this idea that, that brokenness is God gonna break you, that there's something wrong with you. He needs to break that inside of you and, and he's gonna hurt you and punish you as a result. That's not what brokenness is. And I say that because if you're in Jesus, if you've named his name and you've called upon him for salvation, there is absolutely nothing wrong with you. Nothing. You're a new creation, holy, as holy as he is, righteous, as righteous as he is, born again, beloved, accepted, pure, new heart, washed clean, forgiven. That's who you are today. You're not broken in any way. Now we're learning obedience and we're being transformed in our thinking. And so that's happening, but who you are is good. That's the truth of it. And so this term of brokenness, really, it's a horse training term. And so you think about, uh, you know, wild horses, they have this independent will and the cowboy now, now needs to bring that independent rebellious will of the horse under submission to the cowboy. And that's what God's doing with you and I. He's, he's bringing that rebellious independent attitude under submission to him. We're growing in that obedience. That's what that brokenness is. And watch, watch these cowboys as they look after these horses, especially the horses that have gone through great trauma. There's great patience, there's great love. Sometimes there is correction, but it's all about love. And that's what this brokenness is. That's what this transformation that God's doing is it's out of love for us. And, and it's interesting how the, the people in scripture, when they look back on it, they understood God's heart. I'm sure they didn't enjoy it at the time. David's a great example of that. I mean, you read some of the Psalms and he's crying out to God, let it end, let it end. I don't, I don't want to face this anymore. And then afterwards, he actually says, it's good for me that I was afflicted. He says that in Psalm 119. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your ways, that I might understand how you operate and that I might learn to live differently. Even Job. Job, who goes through this horrible torment, loses everything, everything except for his nagging wife. The one thing he probably could have done without. But I said nagging wife. I was very clear there. Not his wife. Oh, dear. 
Job said, let me get back on track. How happy is the man whom God reproves. So do not despise the discipline of the Lord. Don't despise the correction because he's bringing about healthy change. And, and what we saw last week was some of that healthy change in Abram's life. And we're going to see even more of that product of that healthy change in Abram's life this morning in our story. So let's, uh, let's pray uh, and pray that Joy doesn't listen to this message. Lord Jesus, thank you that Joy is downstairs right now looking after the kids. Would you bless her? Make sure everything goes well there so she's in a good mood. Um, but Lord, I'm excited about this morning and what you have for us. Um, because I believe what we'll see, I hope what we'll see is your heart. Your heart that you have towards us, but also then the heart that we can have towards one another. So do something special, Lord Jesus, trusting you to be the, the teacher, to be the, the one who speaks. So give me your words and um, let they be words of life. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so chapter 14, if you turn to in Genesis, chapter 14 opens up with a, a bit of a historical background, right? So the writer here, which is Moses, he's kind of laying out for us a little bit more of what's going on geopolitically in the larger region uh, around uh, the Mediterranean Sea. And he's going to list a number of kings, nine in total, who have kind of separated themselves into two groups that are at war with one another. They're having a faction going on. Now, at this point in history, these kings are not kings of large countries, right? They're not like King Charles, who's king of over all of England and Scotland and part of Ireland and so forth, uh, and Canada even, as well as the Commonwealth. Instead, these kings would have been, been more localized in the sense that they didn't have big countries, they didn't have big states, they had cities. And so each city was its own state with its own ruler, with its own king. And that's what these, these men were. They were kings over these little, these little states. And so um, and Moses, so he does is he's kind of showing us about who these, these nine kings are. And so the, the first group of kings he's going to list off for us are the ones in verse one there. And they're, they're farther north. They're, they're up in where today is Assyria. And so north of Damascus, that's sort of where these guys are coming from. And, and the first four kings there are Amphraphel, He's the king of Shinar, Arioch, the king of Elisar. I've practiced this one. Chedolora Mayor. I still didn't say it right. We'll call him Cheddar. Maybe that would be easier. Or Che, I'm not sure. We'll, we'll figure it out. He's the king of Elam and, and Tidal, the king of Goim. Uh, sorry, Go, yeah, Goim. And so what's interesting about these four is, is Che, he's the leader. He's the ringleader of all this. He's sort of the most powerful of them all. But each of these ones are powerful. So, uh, for example, uh, uh, Arioch, his name means tall, means long. He's, he's a bit of a giant. And, and Che, he's like, his name means round like a hay bale. So I, I, I imagine he's just this powerful, powerful man, big and strong sort of idea. And so that's what these four kings are, these mighty, mighty kings. And, and then further south around the, the southern part of the Dead Sea on the Jordan side, sort of on the border of modern day Jordan, modern day Israel, is you have five other kings and they're listed for us in chapter two. So you have Bera, the king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Sinab, the king of Adma, Sheremember, king of Zoim, Zeboim, 
Sure. And then the fifth king, they don't even remember his name. Poor guy, king of, of Bela, um, and which is now named Zor. So, but they forgot his name. So he wasn't that big of a deal, I guess. And so basically what's been happening now for 12 years, those five kings that I just mentioned, they were serving the four kings that I mentioned previously. So basically the four kings have kind of conquered them. And now the five kings are, are serving them. They're, they're paying taxes to them, basically. So you might think of them as vassals. You know, you have like lords and nobles. The nobles were the vassals to the king. And so the lords would collect taxes and then pay a portion of those taxes to the king. That's what these group of five kings are doing. Although my mind, what I, the illustration I like is sort of like a mafia, right? You think about what the mafia does, they, they offer you protection. Right, Tim, I don't want anything bad to happen to your house. So I will protect your house for a small fee, just for your benefit, right? Well, who, are they, who's, who does Tim need protecting from? The mafia, right? Well, that's essentially what these people are doing. They're saying, if you, know, if, you, if you pay us, then we'll protect you, meaning we won't attack you. So that's how I kind of think of it as. And for 12 years, it wasn't a problem. And meaning that there was no war, there was no attacking uh, because these five kings faithfully paid their taxes. And then eventually they had their own little Boston tea party and said, we're, we're done. We're not doing this anymore. We're stopping paying this tax. We're not paying them anymore. It's, it's over. And a group of them said, yes, I, you know what? I think it's a bluff. I think they've, they've probably forgotten about us. It's been 12 years. Besides they're so far North, they're not wanting to travel. All. I mean, that's a long way. So let's just not do it. And there's enough of us. If we'd all do it together, we'll be okay. And so they did. So in the 13th year, they stopped paying their taxes. And for an entire year, it seemed to work. Things were great. Except in that 13th year, those four kings were now beginning to prepare and train to come after them. And they started this campaign to go against them. And so in the 14th year, those four kings led by Che start to come down on a military campaign. And, and the scripture tell us, that in verse five, that as they're moving south, so if you can kind of picture in your mind, uh, Israel, uh, modern day Israel, and it's got the, the Jordan River and the Dead Sea, they're coming along the, the east side of the Jordan River, where, where modern day Jordan is. They're traveling down all south along the Jordan River. And along the way, they're taking out anyone who's, who they see. So the first one we discover is they take on the, the Rephim. Um, and that word Rephim, which I can't, can't, I practice that one too. Uh, it means giants. That's literally what that is. They took on a clan of giants and defeated them. And then from there, they went after the Zuzim in Ham. And then the Amim, who, whose name literally means terrors. So they took on the tribe of terrors and defeated them. And then they went after the Horites, whose name means cave dwellers. I looked it up in the dictionary. It says troglodytes. And I thought, man, look at that. I don't get to use that word very often. So I'm going to use it. Troglodytes, right? So they took them down, these cave dwellers. And then they took on the uh, Amalekites and the Amorites. These are some significant armies, significant foes. And they just disposed them easily. And I think the scripture is telling us this to give us a sense of how powerful these four kings are, how powerful of an army they are. And they're just, just cutting through like hot, uh, hot knife through butter through all of these nations. And then eventually they're going to now come up against these five kings. 
So these five kings, they hear what's going on. They, they see the writing on the wall that these four kings are coming. They're angry. Word has probably spread that they've taken on the Rephim and, and others and defeated them. And so now they think, well, let's get together. You know, the five of us together, five on four, we got more, we should win. And in fact, we'll meet them on our ground in the, in the place of our choosing. And so they did. It's called the, the Valley of Siddam which is again, just south of the Dead Sea. And they said, we're going to pick the location. We're going to pick the time. Five on four, we should win. And they got utterly destroyed. Wasn't even close. And in part because these five kings were useless military campaigners. The scripture says that the king of Sodom and king of Gomorrah, even though they're on home turf, they should have used the land to their advantage. They fall into the tar pits and get stuck. Yeah, that's the right answer, right? They're totally useless. They should have used the tar pits to their advantage and they fall into it, right? Completely, completely useless, these guys. And the result is now these four kings, Che and the three other, uh, three other friends, they capture all the goods, all the valuable resources, all the food supply of these five kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. But they also are taking on the people of Sodom and Gomorrah because they want slaves, either to sell or to serve them, to grow their own kingdom. So they got all these slaves and all these servants. And one person of significance they take is Abram's nephew, Lot, who scripture tells us is actually living in Sodom at the time. Remember the significance of that was Abram, he never lived in a city. He always lived on the outside of the city because he was never one of them. He understood that he was a sojourner, a stranger in this land. Whereas Lot, he wanted to be one of them. He wanted to live in the world. And so he's living in, in Sodom and now he's been taken captive. So in verse 13, we read one of the captives gets free. So I don't know if it's one of the servants, one of the, one of the slaves that was taken captive. I don't think it was just one of the warriors that escaped, uh, but I think it was one of the servants got away and he says he made a beeline to Abram. Right? I, don't, I don't think he just happened to come across Abram and then tell the story. He was looking for Abram. And I don't know if it's because he talked to Lot and, and Lot was saying, my uncle Abram, he's a powerful man. If I could just get word to him. I'm sure he'll do something. Or maybe this servant knew of Abram. And maybe he knew the reputation of Abram. Regardless, he knew Abram was someone that could help him. Because he probably had his own family that were still, still captives. So he goes find Abram and he tells what's happened. And the response is amazing. Immediately what Abram does is he grabs 318 men, trained warriors, people who are born in his household, people who are ready to fight. He grabs these 318 men and leads them on a chase to rescue Lot, to rescue all these captives. Now, now here's what's interesting is, is what Abram didn't do. See, he could have sat there and go, oh, Lot, I, I warned you. I warned you, if, if you put your lot in, no pun intended, you put your lot in with Sodom, you're going to be in trouble. And, and I told you, you should have, should have avoided that, those areas and, and stay away from that and kept your nose clean. And, but you know what? You've made your bed, now you got to lie in it, right? You, you, you've kind of made these choices and, and so now you get to reap what you've sowed. And hopefully one day you'll learn a lesson from all this. He could have said all that. And, and it's true that there is a place for allowing consequences to be a great teacher. It really is. 
right? Where, where so many times where we face the consequence and we go, well, that hurt. I don't want to do that anymore. And we learn not to do it anymore, which is why I only stuck a fork in electrical socket twice. Another time, right? However, however, there are times where that is not appropriate. And I think a big challenge in parenting is knowing when it is good to let those consequences be the teacher and times where you have to protect them from those consequences. And this is a moment where Abram understands is a time to protect Lot from his consequences, from his choices. So again, he grabs these 318 men and he himself leads them into war. Now, he could have just sat back. He's got these trained men. He could have said, listen, you guys are SEAL Team 318. You're going to go out there and, and you're going to rescue Lot. Bring them here. I'm going to be hanging out here. I'm, I got these nice, beautiful oak trees. I got a hammock in between there. It's sweet. It's beautiful. I'm going to be here. Bring everyone home. Because he is between 75 and 85 years old. So he's not a young, young spring chicken anymore. But that's not what it says. He says he led them on the chase. He led them into battle because that's his heart. That's his desire for, for his nephew Lot. He's willing to put it all on the line. And again, compare that to when he first went down to Egypt. Remember when he went down to Egypt, what was he afraid of? I don't want to die. And I know that when Pharaoh and his household sees my beautiful smoking hot 65 year old wife, that, that they're going to kill me so that they could have her. And so Sarah, listen, just tell everyone that you're my sister. It's true. We are same father, leave the married part out. He didn't want to get hurt. He was protecting himself, but not anymore. Now he's going off to war. Now he's risking his own safety to rescue another. Do you see the growth, the change, the transformation brought about by the affliction of that famine, of that struggle? And so that's what God's doing. That's the result of this brokenness, this training, this life of repentance that we've been talking about. And so in the battle itself, we can read in verse 15 um, that Abram begins to show his smarts, that he divides his forces uh, uh, into two groups and he attacks them by night, right? So it's smart because now he's, he's coming on multiple fronts. And so they got to split their own forces and they don't know what's coming. Or maybe, maybe they start to back away from run, one and it just chases them into the other one. But also by attacking by night, they're caught off guard. They're not prepared for it. And, and sure enough, he wins this epic battle. And again, these four powerful armies taken down by one army, by Abram and his friends. And the victory is complete and it's total. And it says in verse 16, he brings back, he chases them down. In fact, even those who escaped that initial battle, he continues the chase all the way past Damascus, hunted them down. And he's now rescued all the goods, all the possessions, all the food supply, which is a big deal. But also it says he's rescued Lot with his possessions, verse 16, and also the woman and the people. I ponder that. I thought, isn't that a bit redundant, God? I mean, women are people, aren't they? Yes, right? We may not be able to define what a woman is anymore, but at least we know they're people, right? So, so he made a point to say that he rescued the women. And I pondered that and I thought, 
Chances are what awaited those women was far worse than what awaited the men. Being sold into slavery wasn't going to be good. And I think what God wanted us to know in that is the heart that he has for women. The heart he has for the people who are most vulnerable, who are going to, who are going to suffer the most, that he's coming out to rescue them. Incredible story, right? Great for a movie, great for a blockbuster. Again, I can see it all on, on the big screen. It's got all the elements you could hope for. But as I was meditating on this passage, I couldn't help but draw comparisons to our, our own rescue, to our own redemption by Jesus. See, think about it. We're a lot like Lot, aren't we? We're, we're, we're kind of living in Sodom. We're living in this world. And we've made a lot of foolish choices trying to fit into this world, trying to be like the world, trying to find acceptance in this world, trying to find life in this world that has been corrupted by sin and death. And, and you know, we've, like, uh, because of Adam's choices, like Lot, we've been taken captive, right? We're under the rule and dominion of sin and death. Sin reigns over us. Sin was our master. So we're trapped. We're slaves of sin, slaves of death, death reigning over us, and we're completely helpless. Just as Lot couldn't take down these four kings or, or anyone could take down those four kings on their own, they were helpless. And so were we, no matter what you did, no matter how hard you would strive, no matter how serious you would get it with your sin, you could never overcome sin on your own. We were stuck. And so we needed someone to rescue us. And so Abram's like Jesus, where Jesus leaves his, his comfortable abode, right? He was in heaven on his throne. He didn't have to come. He didn't have to show up as a baby in a manger. He didn't have to grow up in this world and face all those struggles and then go through the cross where he was beaten and abused, maligned, threatened, mocked, all that. And then ultimately to then die a cruel and painful death on a cross. But he did all that because he went to war for you and I. He was on mission to rescue us in the same way Abram was on mission to rescue Lot. He wanted to set the captives free. And again, as, as Lisa said so well, what motivated God to do all that? It was his love. His pure, unfiltered, endless love for you and I. And that's what motivated Abram. It was pure love for Lot, for the one who belonged to him. And so because of that, Jesus has fought to set us free. Set us free from, from, from death. Set us free from sin. Set us free from that tyranny of the world. And all we need to do is accept that gift of freedom. Incredible parallels here. So we keep reading in Genesis 14 and, and you would see now that Abram, he's, he's trucking back home. He's got all the spoils of war. He's got Lot and everything. And, and, um, and he meets now these, the, the kings, they, Sodom and Gomorrah come out to thank him, but he meets this other character named Melchizedek, who was the king of a, a city called Salem, which later becomes Jerusalem. And we're also told he's a priest of Yahweh, a priest of God, the most high God. El Elyon is literally what it says. 
And, and there's so much I want to talk to you about Melchizedek, but we're not going to do that today. We're going to, we're going to do that later. And I have a, a desire to teach the book of Hebrews. So I think we're going to do that because he makes a, another appearance in the book of Hebrews, but he's an incredible character, this, this king and this priest. In fact, there's only one other man in all of history that is a king and a priest. And who's that? His name is Jesus. And so Jesus is on the order of Melchizedek. He's that kind of a kingly priest. And so there's something special happening here. And it says that together, they, they, they built an altar. Melchizedek blessed Abram. And then Abram gave a tithe or 10% of the spoils of war to Melchizedek, this priest and king of Salem. And and many people have turned to this passage and say, well, it's a passage on giving and tithing and why you should tithe. And that's not what this is about. It's not a passage about tithing. It really isn't. And, and we're not going to talk about that because we have way better things to talk about. But if you are curious about what we believe here at New Life about tithing, go on our website. There's a search bar, put in tithing. You will find messages that we've done on it. Um, there's no tithing in the new covenant. Spoiler alert. I came late. Spoiler alert. Should have done that before. Anyways, no, damn. moving on. But, but I want to talk about something more than about giving and money. Cause there's something way, way, way more important than all this. Most people are familiar with the verse John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes, whoever has faith, that's all is required. Whoever puts their faith into Jesus Christ, shall not perish, but have eternal life, right? Great verse, great gospel verse. One of the first verses, maybe the first verse I ever memorized. But you know, there's another great verse that is equally of value to us. And it's 1 John 3.16. And 1 John 3.16, let's turn to it and read it together. So 1 John is his, his epistles, his letters, which are coming to the, at the, towards the end of the, the, uh, the New Testament. So if you hit Revelation, you've gone too far. If you go back and hit Genesis, you've gone too far. But 1 John 3, verse 16, John writes, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. Right? Isn't that what Jesus did? He loved us. He dem- Romans 5, 8, he demonstrated, he proved his love for us by dying on that cross by sacrificing his own desires, his own will, what he wanted in order to rescue us. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. See, the beauty is that now that God has rescued and redeemed you, you get to go do that for other people. That's why it's so important that we understand how loved we are, how how secure we are, how how new creation we really are, born again. The old is crucified and gone. You're a new creation and dwell with the Holy Spirit, holy and righteous. You are loved and accepted. You're good. And now you get to share that same love that God gave and bestowed on you with other people. And so that's kind of what I want to speak about because that's what Lot was received from Abram. And that's what we get to offer to one another. That's what we're trying to create here at New Life, what we call a community of grace. A community of people that is willing to go to war 
with others, others who are struggling, others who are a bit more vulnerable. And before I kind of describe what that might look like, I want to, I want to give a bit of a warning. As you listen to what this community of grace looks like, don't think about it as what this community owes you, right? Think about it as what you can offer the community. Cause there's a very difference, right? Cause, cause what happens is you might hear this and go, yeah, that sounds great. Someone else ought to do that for me, but you're not participating in that community. Think of it in terms of what you can offer others, right? So the paraphrase, John F. Kennedy Jr., think not what this community can do for you, but what you can do for the community. And this community could be the church, could be your family, could be your friends, your workplace, anywhere, right? What do we get to do? What do we get to offer one another? So here's what I think it kind of looks like. Number one point I want to make is that Christ has got to be at the center of it. That's, that's the most important thing that he's got to be at the center of it. And that's not, not just a nice thought that you crochet on a little pillow cushion and put on your, your you know, decorative, uh, to decorate your couch sort of idea. It's actually true. He's, he's the glue. He's the one that pulls it all, all together. And, and that, that's, that's got to be the bedrock and the foundation of all of it. He's what unites us. He's the one that gives you the very power to love because it's his love flowing through you and I. And therefore we dare not try to do without him. Turn, uh, turn to Ephesians chapter four with me, if you would. I want to read verses one to six. We went through this when we were going through the, our study in Ephesians. And it's about the unity we have here. So in verse one, he says, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Do you notice that? Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Not in order to be, but who you are. You've been called saint. You've been called holy. You've been called righteous because you are. Now live that way. That's what he's calling us to do. With all humility and with gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, right? That community of grace, that, that humility, that gentleness, that patience, that tolerance in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. You don't have to create unity, but we do need to preserve it because it's under attack. In verse four, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. He's the glue. It's about him. It's about Jesus. There's only one church. There's only one body and he's the only one head. And so it's about him. And so we look to him and we got to not just make it about him, but as we saw last week, like Abraham, call upon his name, call upon his power, allow him to lead and to guide and to strengthen and to live his life through us. And that's how this community of grace is going to happen. And what's going to look like is that love. Now, please understand in our world today, we've made love sentimental. Think about how we, we speak about love. Oh, I fell in love with this person. I've fallen out of love with this person. 
I love you, just not in that way. Or when marriages are struggling, I'm struggling. I just don't love them anymore. And all of that is sentimental. All that is feeling-based. I feel love. I don't feel love. And that's not the love that God's speaking of here. I almost think we ought to, we ought to follow the Greeks here. Is they've, they've got multiple words, five different words, I think, four of them in, just in the scripture here, four different words for the word love. And, and I think that would help us maybe. Maybe we need to understand this is just the Greek word is agape. So the command is agape one another, more than just love one another. Maybe that would help us because this agape love is the love of God, is his divine love. And then that kind of love is doing what's in another person's best interest, even though it comes at your own cost. And John, let's turn to John 15 for a moment. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples right before he's arrested, that very night of his arrest. And so he's kind of summarizing all the most important things he's got to say to them. And in verse 12, he says, this is my commandment to you, that you love one another, right? We, we sang it this morning. His law is love. His commandment to us is to love one another, just as in the same way that I've loved you. Well, how did he love us? He sacrificed everything, laid it all down his own benefit, his own comfort, so that you and I would be rescued. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Now, please understand, the Greek word there for life is not the word bios. Bios is physical life, right? Think biology, the study of living things, right? Or biography, the story of your life. That's bios. That's not the word he uses. The word he uses is suke, it means soul. And that's far more meaningful and comes at a far greater cost. Because think about it. How many times can you lay down your physical life for someone? Once. It's a big cost, but you only have to do it once. But your soul is like death by a thousand cuts. Because you can lay down your soul over and over and over again. Laying down what you want. Laying down what makes you comfortable. Laying down what you think is right in order to do what's in another person's best interest. That's what we're called to. That's the kind of love that God's asking us to give. He's commanding us to give this sacrificial love. And that's going to be at the heart of this community of grace, making sure that one another are doing well. What's in their best interest, which means at times, as we talked about some difficult things, maybe confronting them, Maybe not doing what they want to make them feel happy, but again, doing what they need. And so the the problem with all that is eventually in any community, there's conflict, right? It's inevitable, right? I think there's a proverb or a verse somewhere where two or three are gathered. There will be conflict. Is that what it says? You would think that's what it says. And so it's going to happen because the reality is the moment two or three people live in that kind of intimacy, live in that close of community, you're going to step on each other's toes, which is why people want to pull away, which is why they want to draw away and isolate themselves because now, now I'm a little bit further away from Norm. So Norm can't hurt me. I'm getting too close to Alex here. Alex might hurt me. So I'm going to back up a little bit. And, and so I got to keep you guys at a safe distance and I might keep out some conflict. Some, 
But you know what I will keep out? All their love. And I need that. I, I need the love of God through Norm to me, to encourage me when I'm struggling. I need him to come and fight for me when I'm struggling. So I got to be close to him. And sometimes I'm going to step on his toes. Sometimes he's going to step on my toes. Sometimes accidentally, sometimes on purpose, because I need it. I need that correction. And so conflict's going to happen. The question is, what do you do about that? See, too often what people are trying to do is they're trying to conflict-proof their lives. Can't happen. And not only that, it shouldn't happen. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians that there's conflict among you, and it's good that there is, as there should be. Conflict is good. Or as some people say, conflict is good. Yeah, it's good. Right? Voice goes up. You don't enjoy conflict. It's hard, but it's profitable. It's fruitful at times. But the question is, what do we do when we face it? Because again, there's no model. There's no structure you can create that will protect you from conflict. So the question is, how will you respond when the conflict's there? Do we love them? Do we forgive them? Matthew 18 tells the parable of the two debtors, right? You remember that story? where the, the, the one man's got an incredible massive debt to the king and the king calls it in and he says, mercy, I can't pay it off. And the king says, okay, I forgive you. You're free. How much does he owe him now? Nothing. Well, this man leaves. He sees a buddy of his who owes him, you know, a few hundred dollars. And what does he do? Pay up. And when he can't pay, he throws the man in prison. He's forgiven an enormous debt, but he can't forgive a little debt. Well, Jesus is the king in that example. He's forgiven you and I of everything, an enormous debt, more than you'll ever be able to understand or fathom. Who are we to then not forgive others? A smaller debt. First John 4, back to the letter, First John 4, verses 19 and 21. John writes, we love because he first loved us. The reason we love one another is because we first received and experienced his love. So if you're struggling to love other people, go back to Jesus and receive his love. Because the more you know his love, the harder it gets to not love other people. So we love because he first loved us. Verse 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment, we see it again, this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Who are we to withhold grace and love and forgiveness when it's been so graciously given to us? The next element of all this is protection. We get to protect one another. Just like we saw Abram protect Lot, we get to protect one another because there are times where you and I are going to be attacked. We have a real enemy out there. In Ephesians 6, 10 to 12, we, we don't have time to read it. But in there, Paul tells us who our real, real enemy is, right? It's not flesh and blood. 
It's not your spouse. It's not your parents. It's not your, your kids, your friends, your ex. It's not the person who even is out to get you. It's not flesh and blood. Our enemy are spiritual forces. It's the flesh. It's the demonic. It's the evil powers out there that are conspiring to steal, kill, and destroy you, to ruin you. And they do it through lies. They do it through attacks. And they will use people at times. And that's why the tendency and the temptation is to turn on people, to turn on the very people who are on your team, to turn on the people that you were called to love. And so really what happens is when we're seeing people being attacked, when we're seeing people struggling, and you'll know they're struggling because they're not offering you love. They're not offering you grace because they're under attack. You get to be the one to come to their aid. Say, well, wait a minute. Hold on. I'm arms up. I'm not here to fight. I'm here to love what's going on. And we got to protect one another. Now we got to fight for one another, help them understand what they're really struggling with. What's really going on here. And I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to understand where you're coming from before I need you to understand where I'm coming from. We take the time to love them. We take the time to fight for them. And then we offer them freedom. It's another element of community of grace. See, Abram, he rescues Lot. He doesn't say, okay, Lot, get out of Sodom. Come now back here. You're going to do this. And, and here's all the rules that you're going to follow by. Lot goes back to Sodom. Abram doesn't try to control him. In fact, he didn't take anything in return from this. When Sodom and Gomorrah, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah offered Abram, you know, take all the possessions. We'll just take our people. Abram says, no, you take them all. Only give to my men what they've earned, but the rest you have. I'm not taking a single bale of hay from you. Not taking anything. Because he didn't do it for the reward. He did it for love. He wasn't trying to control. He wasn't trying to, to leverage his own uh, position. He was offering freedom. And as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.17, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So here at New Life, if you're waiting for New Life to organize everything that you just show up to, you're going to wait a long time. There will be those events but we're trying to create a community and a structure or a, or a fellowship where you guys get to decide what you want to do. And so you're thinking, well, we need to have small groups. Great. Go for it. You've got our support. We should have this kind of event. I agree. Go for it. You've got our support. We want you guys to feel empowered and the freedom to follow the Holy Spirit, to follow his leading. And if there's something on your heart and you want to organize, by all means, go for it. We're here to help you as much as we can. So we encourage you to follow Jesus and dream big because there's freedom here. And then finally, it's all about Jesus. We come back to where we started, right? It's all about him, what he's doing in us, what he's done for us. Romans eleven thirty six, Paul says this, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever, amen. If, if Jesus isn't at the heart of it, I don't want it. It's all about him. And I believe that's what makes this community of grace so special. It's about Jesus. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about him. But because it's all about him, he's making it all about you and I. We get to make it about others. Beautiful.
All right, let's close with, with a final, final comment about this Melchizedek guy. And again, we're going to spend more time on Melchizedek one day. But go back to Genesis 14 and verses 17 to 20. So after his return from the defeat of, of Che and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shava. That's called the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. That's interesting. Now he was a priest of God most high. And he, Melchizedek, blessed him, Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. The bread and the wine is significant because it's communion. It's communion thousands of years before communion. It's, it's communion before even Passover. But there's a covenant. There's a sign for us here. It's going to be an echo that's going to kind of reverberate through time that we won't fully understand until 2,000 years later when Jesus has died on the cross. But what's significant to me was this idea here that Melchizedek, this priest, this king of righteousness, blesses Abram. Because Abram was willing to sacrifice. He was calling upon the name of the Lord. He was obedient to the Lord. And God blesses him. And so let me close a prayer, a blessing over you. So I want you to all stand up. Lord Jesus, we have here this morning your saints, your holy ones, your children, the sons and daughters of God. And you have rescued and you have redeemed and you've made into new creations. Lord Jesus, I, I bless them that they would have a, a deeper, fresh awareness of this identity we have in you. What it means to be sons and daughters, what it means to be a new creation. May you remind us that the old is gone. The one who has been shamed is dead. And we've been given a new identity, a shame-free identity. And we live and operate in grace now. Not by rules, not by structures, but by trusting in you and your power. And may we sense that strength and that power in us. And so Lord Jesus, bless us with an awareness of you throughout our day. May we love you as we know and experience your love, may that love from you overflow from us into those around us here, within our own fellowship, within the larger church at whole, into our families, into our friends, and may it overflow even to a world that does not yet know you. And may you use us to be a light unto the world and introduce yourself to this world through us. I ask this in your name, amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.